Welcome to Sacred Realms. It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. Uh, really flying by the seat of our pants tonight, having some uh, some some rather extreme audio uh, technical difficulties in the lead up to the recording of this episode. Matt and I are in the uh, on the, in the quite unfortunate situation of having to share one mic between us. We're snuggling. We're snuggling out here. We're a little too much in each other's personal space for my comfort, but uh, I guess that is what it is when you only have one working microphone. Of course, I am your host, Lyndon Willoughby, uh, joined as always by, uh, you know, you, you know, my co-host, Matt Willoughby. Who's in too close of a proximity. Yeah, uh, it's it's not ideal. This is not my favorite way to do this, you know? I, I, I love you dearly as my brother, but um, I also value my personal space. So, um, but you know what? The pod must go on. So the pod, we pod must go pod. on. Yeah, it, you know, there really is no worse time to figure out that you're having uh audio hardware issues than when you sit down to record an episode of your podcast but i guess when you think about it when else would you like when else would you be able to figure that out i was gonna say the same thing like we don't routinely test our equipment outside of the podcasting environment so i mean maybe we should start doing that now uh this is definitely most unfortunate i don't know i always just had i had trust you know i had trust in my heart for our equipment and and i'm sad to say that trust is broken matt i just uh there's a hole in my heart where that trust used to be that is uh definitely true our fall our uh trusty equipment our fail proof equipment for the majority of this podcast uh has let us down and uh i guess we're gonna have to start looking for some uh replacement parts either uh cords or microphones or you know who knows what so yeah thus begins the troubleshooting process to figure out what the heck is actually broken in our whole setup but the one thing we know isn't broken is this one microphone that we're on together tonight which is good because we are coming to you with our second episode in season seven covering the legend of zelda the wind waker of course uh the first episode of this season was as matt and i traditionally do just a introductory episode talking about the first section of the game just uh him and myself kind of take some time just the two of us to really dig into our thoughts and feelings about a new game experience but that episode is in the past this is the present and in the present we have another person on the episode to talk about the section of the game that we're gonna talk about tonight and uh of course you know we uh we have no shortage of our recurring cast of wonderful co-hosts who have love for this game right um it's a it's a big it's a big one for pretty much all of them i think and so uh we definitely have an excellent roster of folks who are going to be on this season to help talk about this game uh the first one that i am uh Always pleased to introduce and to uh, welcome back to the show is, of course, President Obama. Yeah, the, the the Barack Obama of Australia, Cody Davies himself of Zelda Universe. Cody, how are you doing, sir? Splish kaboom howdy, as they say down in Texas. <laughs> Splash kaboom howdy. I don't think at least two of those words are normally used, but howdy definitely is. Well, I mean, the, uh, you know, the the ancient Texan 
truly what it, it, it was it was the uh it was the the ancient uh woo howdy right woo howdy boy and uh but i i think i think what cody's done is kind of updated it for a more modern age and i i appreciate that i'm gonna put that under the umbrella of artistic license and uh i'm gonna allow it yeah, fair enough cody how you doing good i'm always I, glad to be here on the sacred realms podcast well we're always happy to have you on the sacred realms podcast i do have to offer a quick congratulations before we get too much further into this uh, because i saw something uh saw, saw something really wonderful on my uh, facebook feed the other day which was an announcement from the uh, recently re-elected cody davies uh congratulations on winning your uh, winning your race for uh, uh it's uh, town council right yeah um it's so basically I'm a yeah I'm a councillor at at my town it's the elections are every 4 years so I got on for the first time in 2018 and then I've been re-elected in 2022 so now I, now I don't have to worry about elections again until uh this time in 2026 so that's uh good to have it over with and uh and be able to to settle down and figure out what to do these next few years well, I'm definitely glad to hear that one. You enjoyed public service enough to subject yourself to it for a second four years. Um, good for you. Uh, but yeah, also you know, happy to hear that you uh, happy to hear that you won. We were we were rooting for you in a very non tangible way as we were unable to cast a ballot in your favor. Um, but definitely very happy to hear that you uh, won through and that you're going to be able to continue serving your town for another four years. Um, if you don't mind me asking, was this a was this a particularly tight election? Was this something that you were kind of worried might go, you know, a, a different direction? I, I mean, we're, uh, we're we've been kind of embroiled in in election drama over here in the states as well for a little while. So I'm just, you know, I'm still riding that high of uh, any good any good overly dramatized election story if you have one. Well, look, our mayoral election was decided by less than 100 votes, so that was very uh, that that was very exciting. Um. The council elections are look. If you've got another fifteen minutes, I can explain the um, the election process. But um, basically, the idea is that um, we've got ten spots, and if we reach a quota of you know ten percent of the vote, someone fills up those spots, and everyone's all elected at once. Um, and so it's like a multi multi member election where multiple people are elected at once. And so I was elected at about six out of the 10 uh, available spots uh, and there were 23 people running. So I was sort of, you know, solidly in the middle. Um, you know, I did well, uh, could have, you know, could have done better or worse, but, you know, I, I did well enough that people said, sure, you can come back for another four years. That sounds like a very sensible system of governance, if I do say so myself. Yeah, I, I would I would cast my ballot for that. Yeah, cool. There you go. <laughs> Unfortunately, we live in we live in Texas, and our our ballots don't really count for much of anything. Yeah, so. <laughs> unless yeah, that's, yeah. Let's Look, just not talk about that depressing state of affairs. Yeah, but everyone should vote in their local elections. That's my you know PSA is that if you are not paying attention to your very local level elections, uh, neither is anyone else. Um, Voter turnout, even in Australia where most voting is compulsory, and this is the only level that's not compulsory, 
Uh, turnout was about 35%, but turnout for local stuff in America when there's no nothing bigger on the ballot, like not a governor's race or a presidential race or something, can be like 10 15% sometimes. So people are just getting elected like 100 yeah, votes that's, or whatever. That's not a surprising statistic at all. Um, yeah, definitely co-sign that message, vote in your local elections, you know, uh, the ones where you probably have the most power to actually, you know, uh, make your opinion heard and to make some meaningful change. So anywho, that has been the uh, that has been the notably not part of the Sacred Realms rundown uh, section, politics oriented section of the Sacred Realms retrospective Hold on. podcast. Uh, 16. There we go. All right. Yep. <laughs> Part 16, governance in Australia. Good. Got it. Cool. We'll circle back around to that. Awesome. Well, with all that said, I am ready to get into a conversation about the game we came here to talk about, which is uh, The Wind Waker, a noted classic that has only continued to get better with age. Um, before we get into the housekeeping and the Sacred Realms rundown and all that stuff, Cody, I want to give one second here to uh, kind of ask you what your history is with The Wind Waker. Um, I, I seem to remember you saying that this was, if not the first Zelda game that you played, one of the first Zelda games that you played. And because of that, you have quite a lot of, uh, you know, very strong nostalgia for it. So this was, so the first Zelda game I played was Ocarina of Time. Um, so it was, a it was the next generation after, after the N64, um, you know, this game. So it was sort of relatively new, but I think the most important thing about it to me was that it was where I started interacting with the community of Zelda fans. Uh, 2003 is when I made my account on the Zelda Universe forums to talk about The Wind Waker, which had recently come out. So um, that marks a, a big occasion. That forum account is like over half my life ago at this point. It's over 18. It's old enough to vote. It's uh, it's coming up on its 20th birthday next year. Yeah, so, you know, 2003, I made that Zelda Universe forum account to talk about the Wind Waker, and it's all, everything's happened from there, and now I help run the website. So obviously, Wind Waker, kind of from that perspective, just like talking about what Zelda game you were playing at a certain moment in your life was pretty monumental, um, was, I mean, so from a forum perspective, and granted, I mean, I know 2003 is is decently early in the in the online history, right? Um, obviously, yeah. for, you know, forums and, and blogging and stuff, that was all still fairly new at the time. Um, was was there quite a lot of activity on the Zelda Universe forums around the release of this game? And did a lot of it have to do with the, at that time, controversial art style? Yeah, look, because there was that, uh, was it 2000 Space World demo that showed the power of what, you know, the new consoles could bring to The Legend of Zelda. And it was like, you know, Link fighting Ganondorf and it was more realistic looking um and people really hyped for that and then and then what they got was this graphical style which i think in the in retrospect holds up much better than than most games in terms of like it's a 20 year old game but the art style will continue to be 
relevant for the next hundred years, you know? Um, yeah. And I, I think that was a big point of discussion. The other one was the law implications. Um, because if you remember up until this point, I think you've played, no, you haven't, you haven't played Maduro's mask yet. Have you? I was going to say you've, you've done seasons on all of the previous we have uh, we have not, and Matt and I actually have a sneaking suspicion that that's probably going to end up being our grand finale. Like, I think it's probably just going to end up that outside way. Outside of tears. Well, uh, yeah, outside of tears. Yeah, I mean, well, look, that will make sense. But, like, just speaking from the perspective of just theorizing that you can do about the Zelda series, like, between Zelda 1 and 2, there's not much. You know, there's... It's a very it's a very clear cut, you know. This is the same link. This link is um, a bit older now for Zelda Two, and then you sort of got another another game with a link to the past, uh, and then Link's Awakening was sort of just a side story. Really, it didn't fit into it didn't fit into the timeline in any meaningful way. Um, but but was still again paired like the link of that game was paired with another game that was out at the time. Yeah, I mean, look at one point the official theory, uh, and by official I mean what some Nintendo America employee said um, was that Link's Awakening took place in the middle of Zelda Two. I don't know if you've heard this. Nope, never heard this before. So you know how Link travels. Across continents on a raft? Yeah. So the theory is he got lost at sea at that point and had an adventure and then washed up on the other shore. And how long was it before that was officially debunked? That was so because basically people used to tell people used to ask Nintendo, like, so what's the timeline? Are there multiple links? Are there, you know, and just some, you know, basically worker at Nintendo of America was like, I'll settle this. There's only one link. Um, there's only ever been one link and this is his adventures. Um, you know, Link's Awakening takes place in the middle of Zelda two. Uh, and that was, that was the official quote unquote confirmation that we had for a little while there, but it was quickly sort of non-canonized. Um, you know, it's uh but you know it was a very it was the kind of thing that was happening at the time like there wasn't the same sort of like the developers didn't care about the timeline so you know just people would try to fill it in um and so you know you got to Ocarina of Time that was clearly the first game it was the origin story it was you know this is why there's a, a link in Zelda and Ganondorf and then Majora's Mask was another side story. The Wind Waker was a game that in the opening in the opening cutscenes tells you, hey, you remember that hero of time from Ocarina of Time? Well, he didn't come back. And this is, you know, this is the origin point of when people started discussing is the timeline linear? Is it split? all of this kind kind of thing uh, to some extent. like, And then because you get to Twilight Princess and it offers a different 
not to talk too much about Twilight Princess when you haven't done it yet, but it offers a different point of view on what happens to Ganondorf after the events of Ocarina of Time. Right. right. And you go, all right, so what's what's happened here? And so so these two games, these two GameCube games, if uh, some people object to calling Twilight Princess a GameCube game, but uh, look, it's on the GameCube, um, are sort of where you started to get much more in-depth speculation about you know, timeline splits, and it, it started to become less just a casual conversation topic and more of a um, always sunny in Philadelphia, Pepe Sylvia, um, <laughs> you know, the the red strings and on the on the board kind of conspiracy right. theory situation. And so that, of course, is very good for internet forums. And you hopped in right in the very middle of all of that. Oh yeah, no, it was uh, lots, lots of stuff. The the unexplored wild west of uh, of Zelda theorizing back before in 2011 they came out with an official timeline. And it's so interesting because we didn't talk about this last week, but Matt, have you ever heard of the Space World demo that Cody mentioned just a second ago? I have actually never heard of that before. Cool. So the year before. Uh, Wind Waker was officially released. I think it was the year before, right, Cody? It was 2000? Um, so Wind Waker was officially released in 2002, I think. I mean, it depends on the region, but... Uh, right, right. But the Space World demo was shown off in 2000. It, yeah. Okay, right. So uh, so it it was 2000. There was uh, the Space World tech convention or whatever. And uh, Nintendo, as Cody said, was showing off a... Um, showing off a tech demo that was meant to represent what in-engine graphics could look like on their next generation hardware, which was the GameCube. And it was a animated segment that showed a very Ocarina of Time looking Link fighting, a very Ocarina of Time looking Ganondorf. And obviously it was like significantly more graphically intensive than it looked in Ocarina of Time. Um, I think the closest that I could probably kind of uh, the closest parallel I could probably draw is uh, this looked like a Super Smash Brothers melee link fighting a Super Smash Brothers melee Ganondorf. Um, and, you know, I'm sure it was very impressive at the time uh, because it, it did mark a very clear improvement, I think, over the uh, much more polygonal art style of the N64 games. But uh, that was the last anybody ever saw of it. What happened next is that, you know, get a year or more down the road and then, um, you know, a trailer for Wind Waker is revealed. And as Cody said, it's a much different art style than uh, it's a much different art style than the Space World demo was. And so uh, a lot of the backlash that originally crept up around to that chibi art style kind of had its genesis in the fact that a lot of people were very um, kind of, you know, uh, let down, I guess, by the fact that they were expecting this more like, you know, Ocarina of Time, just better graphics sort of approach. Um, and that's definitely not what they got. I think when you, when you look back on it and actually let's, let's pause for two seconds real quick. Thanks for sending me the link, Cody. Um, yeah, and I'm going to watch, watch yeah, let's watch it real quick. Yeah, so there you go. So yeah, that looks like that looks good, except that like the video quality was kind of grainy. So it might just be you know an older YouTube, um, so not super high quality. But like the the art style, definitely like you said, Lyndon, 
Um, if you were to zoom in on Link in Smash Bros. Melee and Ganondorf in Smash Bros. Melee, I think that's kind of exactly what that would look like. I do like the um, the more natural movement that they have. Um, they're moving their swords in different directions and uh, they're actually like clashing um, in real time. So that, w- that was pretty neat. Um, it looks... Yeah, I mean, I I don't know that that would have done better for Wind Waker. I think as much as the chibi art style isn't necessarily my favorite, just personally, um, I don't think that this art style would have done better for this game. Well, and I don't think that it would have appreciated as well either. I think to Cody's point, there's there's a very timeless quality to this art style. It's kind of like Journey, right? Like in 75 years, nobody's going to look back at Journey and say, you know, man, that game hasn't aged well, right? Yeah. Like we we definitely say that for um, some other games, but like even the eight bit, the pixelation, like stuff like that, just for some reason maintains a more timeless quality. And I think Chibi falls into that realm. Um, so I, I think that the in retrospect, t- almost twenty years later, uh, or twenty years later, I think exactly, um, they made the right decision with Wind Waker to 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 go with the art style they they chose. Yeah, because I think it's something that games that are trying to be realistic become obsolete quickly. I think you know there's yeah because there's the realism is always shifting, right? With with technology. because the realism can always be made better by a new console generation, but art style can be um, art style can be timeless in a way that is. You know, irrelevant. There, there are works of art from you know the 1700s or whatever that you look at it and you go, "Wow, that's you know, that's incredible." It's not that it's more realistic than something you could make now because now we have photographs, but that it captures something in essence um, by being art. And I think that's what they managed to do with the Wind Waker's art style. I think it holds up better than. Um, Twilight Princess's art style at the time was sort of compared and contrasted with this a lot because it was like the the realistic approach. It wasn't actually realistic still. It was just more more centered around real, you know, human body shapes and that kind of thing as opposed to, you know, this style, but it still had some degree of um, cartooniness. But still I think this holds up really well. Um, in comparison to a lot of those older games. Yeah, I think obviously Wind Waker, I I don't think it's a controversial um, statement to say that Wind Waker does have the most distinctive art style in the entire canon of Zelda games. Um, I think that every game that came out after Wind Waker, including Twilight Princess, um, once you once you account for for graphical fidelity and by that, I mean, once you account for uh, standard def versus HD right uh once you once you factor that into your equation um you know i think that all of those games from wind waker on twilight princess skyward sword breath of the wild uh they all kind of you know uh they kind of ride this line between implied realism and very intentional stylistic choices whereas majora's mask and ocarina of time it was definitely just like hey how realistic could we make this given the power of the Nintendo 64, right? Like, that's kind of all yeah, that they I mean, really it, is, it was still stylized. Like, there are games, you know, there were games on the N64. I don't know, just 
off the top of my head, Turok or something that are like more like this is what it would look like in a movie kind of thing. Um, and, you know, it is Ocarina of Time and Dora's Mask do still have a cartoony style to some extent, but like a lot of that wasn't, it wasn't as intentional as it was in The Wind Waker, I think. Yeah, I think my my last thing I want to say on this as we're 25 minutes into this episode is that I think Skyward Sword is actually a pretty interesting artistic spiritual successor to Wind Waker in a lot of ways in that it keeps that cell shading, brightly colored, well-lit watercolor style of artisticness with updating and, and kind of moving away from the chibi towards the more um, – humanistic realistic style but maintaining an artistic um identity that works very well so i I really love how in a lot of ways the art style of wind waker paved the way for the art style of skyward sword which is kind of my favorite well and even breath of the wild uh breath of the wild is a cell shaded game it has a much more realistic take on cell shading it's kind of tuned in a very different way but um you know like that, that kind of that base approach is still there. Obviously, not in terms of like character rendering, right? But uh, in terms of like color palette and stuff, uh, you know, um, you're absolutely right. This is kind of the genesis of something. And and yeah, I think the last thing I want to say about it is that uh, I completely agree with you, Cody. I think that in so many ways, just uh, talking about the art style of this game, I think regardless of how controversial it was at the time, I think in many ways it is the most future-proofed that a Zelda game possibly could be. Yeah, and I, I guess I'll just say that the the expressions and stuff on faces are one thing that really stands out to me with the art style. Um, like, there's never been anything in a game before this point that is as openly sort of like expressing its emotions as, for example, you know, Link waving farewell to his to his island when he leaves and that kind of thing. Um, and I don't think that's been captured again um, to the same extent um, in a lot of the Zelda series. Yeah, I, I think... Uh... Yeah, I don't know. I th- This is another conversation for another time because I would have to sit and think real hard about whether or not I think because I, I recall both Skyward Sword and Breath of the Wild being uh, both having quite a lot of great expressive quality um, in the oh, characterization. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not saying it's the only one that ever has, but like with the graphics available to it at the time, the chibi art style and everything made it more possible for them to have bigger, bigger expressions. I guess. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like if you're at the time on that hardware, if you're trying to communicate emotions as effectively as possible, yeah, I think this is probably the the best and safest way to have done that. I think there's no way that you can look at it and say that it wasn't successful, you know? So I I completely agree with you on that, Cody. Uh, Real very, very quick follow-up question. Um, What, uh, where would you say that this one currently ranks for you in, in the canon of Zelda games? Um, currently I have it at either number two or number three. Um, I am, so first at the moment is Breath of the Wild. And then competing for number two and three are Majora's Mask and the Wind Waker. Which, (laughs) the, the similarities between those three games, I think, is that they have a high focus on, 
fun side questing or interesting stories that aren't just part of the main plot. Um, and that's sort of something that I tend to look for in a game, in a Zelda game. I think you went into the future and had a uh, had a little chat with future Lyndon about his uh, top three Zelda games at the end of this whole run of podcast. Who knows? Yeah. I may I may not feel that way once we get there, but that's kind of like I've as I've you know as, as we play more of these and I find myself like thinking about them, I'm always like kind of coming back to wh- which ones are going to be the top for me and and I, I'm pretty sure it's those three. But who knows? We'll see when we get there. We've got a lot of game, a lot of games left to play. Uh, we've got a lot of game here to talk about tonight because this is a pretty meaty second chapter of a game. So let's go ahead and dive into the conversation. Before we do that, go ahead and get some housekeeping out of the way. If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly re-examination of The Legend of Zelda one little slice at a time. Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. Every week we play a new section of a Zelda game. Then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, and be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to Patreon dot com slash sacred realms pod and get access to our discord channel listener mail vote on what game we play next and so much more additionally one of the benefits that are afforded to master sword patrons and above on our patreon is that we read their names every week here on the show those legendary individuals are soge king vine smoke that's a new one what a name damn Good on you, Soge King. Uh, Kelso, Chris, Tiffany, Daxel, Patrice, Stephanie, Darknuck, Brian, George, Mike, Dylan, Allie, Lennon, Kolku, Rowan, Josh, Nick, keep it going, Dante, Gep, Brittany, Davey, Haru the Mighty, Derek, Albert, Mark, Andy, Cameron, Tyler, Ben, Daniel, Nick D underscore TV, Christian, Jonathan, Hyrule Interviews, a.k.a. Max Nichols, Garrett, Andrew. They are the most legendary of individuals. We would go on an ocean voyage with them anytime, and we couldn't make this podcast with and we could not make this podcast without them. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But without further ado, let's get into the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is, of course, a six-part analysis of what we played this week and the feelings that it made us feel. Today we're covering the Wind Waker Chapter 2, which takes us to Windfall Island, Dragon Roost Island, and our first proper dungeon in Dragon Roost Cavern. Part one of the Sacred Realms Rundown is, as always, the plot recap. Today, once again, read by Matt. Take it away, Matt. We awaken to a combination of familiar sensations. The feel of the sun on our back, the sound of seagulls and gently lapping waves, the smell of salt air, and someone calling our name, and the gentle rocking of a boat on even tides. That last one seems off for some reason, and we groggily try to remember the last thing that happened. We seem to recall something about a flying barrel, maybe a shadowy fortress, and a giant bird? How did we get on this small boat, and why is it looking at us? Wait, the boat is looking at us? The red boat with the head of a lion is not only looking at us, but starts talking to us. 
Pull yourself together, Link, the boat says. Of course, we are in total shock that a boat with the head of a lion with giant eyebrows is talking. And the boat concedes that point, saying that in the whole wide world, I am the only boat upon it who can speak the words of men. Of course, it does have to preempt that with a jab about us being quite dull, but honestly, we're just as shocked to be alive as we are to be on a talking boat, so we're just kind of rolling with the punches here. The boat introduces itself as the King of Red Lions, which seems a little on the nose, but again, just rolling with those punches. He says that he has been watching us since we set off to the Forsaken Fortress to free our sister. And while he applauds our courage and desire to save her in the face of such danger, says that it was a foolhardy attempt. And with how it turned out, it's kind of hard to argue. The king continues to tell us that the shadow that commands the bird is called Ganon, and is the very same Ganon of legend that brought the ancient kingdom to ruin in search of the golden power. While he doesn't know why the seal that held him has failed, it cannot be denied that Ganon is back. He is still powerful, and he undoubtedly seeks to cover the land in darkness once again, so that he may rule over an empire of evil. After affirming our willingness to do anything to save Errol, the king says that we must acquire a sail for him so that we can set out across the Great Sea, in order to endure a grueling set of trials to grow our power and be able to defeat this evil usurper. He tells us that he will accompany and guide us along the way, as Ganon cannot be defeated by human hands alone, let alone the little power that we currently possess. He has brought us to this island of tradesmen so that we can hopefully find a sail and start our journey. So we disembark and head to the inner part of Windfall Island, where we find a myriad traders, colorful individuals, and even a gang of school kids who try to prove their dominance by losing in a game of hide-and-seek. On this island is a trader in a massively furry coat, which makes absolutely no sense, but this man does ask us to help his friend out of a pickle with the local law enforcement. So we do him a solid and head to the jail, where we just straight up release the person inside with no questions asked. This equally odd fellow starts calling us Mr. Fairy and says a whole bunch of nonsense words before heading out to God's Nowhere. We head on back to the fur-clad trader and tell him his errand is complete, and this kindly odd fellow agrees to sell us a sail for the bargain price of 80 rupees. Off we head back to the king, and from there we set sail to the west, as that is the way the wind is blowing. The king tells us that in our path is Dragon Roost Island, the home of the Rito and the sky spirit that they worship. Here we should find the first piece of help in our journey to defeat Ganon. But once we land on the island, it is immediately evident that something is very wrong, because atop the mountain is shrouded in dark, swirling clouds of ash. As we disembark, the king gives us a fancy baton that he says is the Wind Waker, which is fabled to be able to control the path of winds. He isn't sure if it still works or not, but it can't hurt to keep around. 
We make our way up to Rito Village with the help of some nearby wild-growing bomb flowers, where we are greeted by Quill, who convinced Tetra to take us to the Forsaken Fortress in the first place. Quill offers to introduce us to the Rito Chieftain, because Quill is a stand-up dude who is openly supportive of our quest to save Errol and the other young women who have been kidnapped. We head to the Airy and meet the Chieftain, who is just as kind-hearted and concerned for the well-being of all life as Quill said he would be. The outpouring of concern and offer of help is tempered, however, by the fact that the Rito are currently in a serious bind with the issues that are plaguing the mountain that we saw on our way in. We come to find out that the Rito only grow their wings in adolescence once they ascend the mountain and obtain a scale from the sky spirit Valu, who is in the form of a great dragon. Recently, Valu has fallen into a seriously bad mood and has not only caused the mountain to be clouded with fire and ash, but has caused rock slides, lava flows, and even denied the ancient ritual of the gifting of the scale. This means that no Rito will be able to grow their wings until Valu changes his mind. This includes the chief's only son, Prince Komali. Apparently, Komali refuses to undertake the trial to visit Valu, and the chieftain hopes that we can talk him into it with our own courageous ways. If we can do this, and once Valu is back to normal, the Rito will pledge their help to our quest. In final parting, the chief tells us that he has written a letter to his son, which is in the keeping of another young Rito named Medley, and asks, asks us to give it to him, should we decide to speak to the prince. With that in mind, we head to find Medley, who is a curious young Rito in the top levels of the Airy. She may be a young Rito, but she is an extremely important one, as she is the apprentice attendant to the great Sky Spirit. She gives us the letter that the chief wrote and tells us to not be offended by Prince Komali's attitude, which is really not a great start to any conversation in the history of ever. With the letter in hand we and the warning about his odd attitude, we go to find the prince and we find him staring at a curious orb that glows with an inner orange light like that of a calm fire. The prince refuses to speak to us until we present him with the letter that his father wrote, and after reading it, the prince tells us that he was the first to visit Valu after his ill temper became the norm, and the experience of coming face to face with an enraged dragon was far too much to experience again. He says he will not listen to our admonishments until we too face the trials and overcome them. If we can do that, then he will consider making the trek once again. Seeing that Valu has to be back to normal for the Rito to help us anyway, we head back to talk to Medley, as she might be the best person to help us start this reckless quest to meet an angry dragon. Medley is more than willing to help, and asks us to meet her by the entrance to the path up the mountain. Once we get there, we find a windswept and desolate mountain path, with withered bomb flowers, a plugged up spring, a broken bridge, and a swirling vortex of volcanic wind. Medley is on the ground below the broken bridge, and once we join her, she tells us how this place used to be a place of beauty and peace. Since Valu has entered his rage, the spring was plugged up by a falling rock and the volcanic winds have become wild. She asks us to help her get to the ledge across the way by giving her a boost. Her wings are not yet fully developed, so she needs some initial lift to get her airborne. 
We agree and head to a rock that is a little higher off the ground, and when the wind is just right, give Medley a good toss. I cannot jump the distance, I have to toss me! She lands on the other side and tells us that she intends to talk to Balu herself and sort this out. She asks us not to tell anyone, and that while she may be afraid, she has this under control. She thanks us one last time before gifting us an empty bottle and heading up the mountain path. Not believing that she has this under control for two seconds, we quickly use the empty bottle to scoop up some water from the plugged spring and revitalize the wilted bomb flower. We then use this flower to blow up the rock plugging the spring, and with the water high enough, we swim across and climb the broken bridge to the other side of the path. With some quick bomb work, we make a path that we can walk across and head up the mountain path toward the dragon roost. Once we reach the Dragon Roost Cave, we find it is full of enemies. Two Bokoblins attack us as soon as we open up the secret entrance, which immediately tells us that there is big trouble ahead. Definitely trouble too big for Sweet Medley. We start diving through the trials of the Dragon Roost Cave, always on the lookout for Medley. This cavern is literally inside an active volcano and the magma pools, lava spurts, and intense heat are enough to make any sane person think twice about venturing within 100 yards of this space. But we have to save Medley, calm Valu if possible, and secure the help of the Rito to save Errol. So we keep going deeper and deeper into the cave. Within the cave, we find many bokoblins, some red shoes, and flying bats to block our path. Mostly these enemies are felled with ease, but the path is still hard as we have to figure out how to cross lava pools with nothing but jugs of water or destroy sturdy barricades that block the way. Eventually we make it outside of the cavern and begin to climb towards the top. Some nasty birds and a couple lava spurts block the way, but we eventually make it to a very high point on the mountain, where we find Medley in a cage guarded by a handful of shield-bearing bokoblins. We make fairly quick work of these hooligans, and just as we think Medley will be freed, a bird flies up and drops a moblin in the arena of combat. This brute poses more of a challenge than his cousins, but we also dispatch him, and this finally frees Medley from her cage. Medley is of course grateful, and gives us the grappling hook, which can be used to traverse great distances by swinging across them. She also tells us that the reason Valu is so furious is that his tail is stuck inside the mountain, and that something is constantly biting it. We use the grappling hook to exit this arena of combat and head back into Dragon Roost Cavern to keep exploring so that we can find a way to enter the chamber that is evidently Valu's tail torture chamber. Eventually, we come across strong enemies in the form of lava centipedes and fire keys, as well as more challenging puzzles that require the use of the grappling hook and some daring moves that involve cutting bridges free of support. We get the big key from a chest deep within the dungeon, and we head to the large door that we saw on our way to the room preceding the outer path that led to Medley's prison. Once inside, we can see the dragon's tail protruding from the ceiling and it is stuck inside a crevice that prevents him from moving. The pit of lava beneath begins to surge, and a giant crustacean-looking monster blasts towards the ceiling. Its glowing carapace, malevolent eye, and evil pincers immediately proclaim it to be Balu's torturer. The beast spots us and immediately begins attacking. 
Its pincers are too large and powerful to block with our shield, and it continually pivots to keep us hemmed within striking range. Struck by an idea, we use the grappling hook to attach to Valu's tail and swing to freedom. This action causes the ceiling to shake, and the plug that holds Valu's tail breaks free and crushes the evil crustacean. As carapace cracks and it falls into the lava pit, but before we can declare victory, it shoots back up and shoves the stone plug back into place. It is definitely worse for wear, however, and we pull this trick twice more in order to do as much damage as possible to this fiend, and the third hit finally breaks the carapace completely, and a single glowing eye is finally vulnerable. Using some innate instinct, we immediately start slashing away at this eyeball until finally the parasite falls. And in its death throes, the lava pit hardens to stone, and Balu's tail is finally set free. We exit the cavern via the magical portal to find Medley and Komali waiting for us. The former proclaims great joy at seeing us, and even greater joy to see Valu returning to normal. Komali, however, is slightly abashed. He tells us that because of our demonstration of courage, he will go see Valu once more to obtain the scale. He even goes so far as to give us the beautiful and ethereal orb that we saw earlier. It is called Din's Pearl and is said to contain the essence of fire within. It is a powerful artifact that will undoubtedly help us on our journey. Before we set off, back on our quest, Valu makes his own thanks known by declaring that we are a true hero. With this praise from the great dragon sky spirit, we set our sights towards the horizon to continue our quest, increase our power, throw down the evil king, and save Errol. All right, well, let's get into part two, which is our takes, where we talk about this section of the game and how it made us feel. Uh, so, Matt, I want to I pass this off to you real quick, because we've got a lot more to get into here, and I would love to kind of get your takes about kind of how you felt about it and your ongoing opinions of the game as it sort of evolves and opens up and starts to get back into some of those like staples of Zelda game progression. Cool. I'm going to move the mic closer to me since I'm going to be talking for a little bit here. So apologies for any noise you have to edit out. Um <clears throat> So, I really, really liked this section of game. I think you were kind of checking in on me as I was playing it, just kind of trying to feel out how I was feeling. Um, and, man, this this was fun. This was very fun. This was probably, man, probably the most fun, like, secondary intro or intro period uh, that I can remember playing in a Zelda game. Um, Windfall Island was so interesting and so full of characters and so full of um, really cool things to explore and find. Um, 
sailing was really fun. I really enjoyed the sailing mechanic and gliding around on the water. Um, Dragon Roost Island was beautiful, and the music for both of the locations that we visited were just bop. Man, they were bopping the whole time. Um, and this dungeon was so fun. So I said I said last week that uh, my two favorite soundtracks, or my two favorite tracks from the Wind Waker soundtrack, were both uh, going to be uh, things that you were introduced to in this section of the game. And uh, now I can go ahead and say what those two were. That is, of course, like you just mentioned, the Dragon Roost Island theme, which is, uh, in my opinion, one of the all-time great Zelda songs. It's it's incredible. Um, I could listen to it on repeat and have listened to it on repeat, uh, you know, just for, for long periods of time. There's like a there's like a 10 hour looped version of it that you can pull up on YouTube. And, uh, you know, I've, I've kept that on in the background once or twice. Um, it's just a really, really great piece of music. Um, and I was so, so happy when it was rearranged and brought back for Rito Village and Breath of the Wild. And then, uh, of course, the number two pick for me is the Great Sea theme, which, um, man, to, to me, the Great Sea theme, like once you kind of get the sail and y- you and the King of Red Lions have departed Windfall Island, you're heading towards Dragon Roost Island. Um, to me, when that theme cuts in, it is pound for pound just as good as the Hyrule Field theme from Ocarina of Time. It is just so good. Yeah, I I agree for the most part. Uh, I, I have I don't know if I am fond enough of it yet to put it in like the all time favorite spot but it's definitely top five maybe top three it is very high up there um man i i really i spent a lot of time on windfall island just running around talking to everybody also mostly because i couldn't figure out how to find the sale but um i i wasn't even mad about that like normally i get a little bit frustrated if i don't find my objective fairly quickly but i was not mad about wandering around windfall island and having fun and talking to people playing hide and seek with some snot-nosed kids and um you know the one the one dark spot amidst all of this brightness was definitely tingle uh man i just cannot can't get on board with tingle in general um but you know we can forgive we can forgive it i guess and um Man, I just yeah, I loved this section. It was it was fun, it was engaging, it was new. It felt it felt very different in a good way from any other 3D Zelda game I played, even Breath of the Wild. Like just the feeling of the sailing was um so unique and so well done. Uh wow. Yeah, it was it was really really great. So, real quick, I'm going to pass it to you, Cody. And I want to get your opinions specifically about Windfall Island, because what this really is, is this game's version of Hyrule Castle Town, Skyloft. Um, you know, it's it's the main hub town for for this entire version of Hyrule and the one that we kind of keep returning to throughout the game. And uh, I'm, I'm definitely going to give my thoughts on it here in a second. But uh, yeah, passing it to you, Cody, what do you what do you think about Windfall Island? I really, I really like Windfall Island as a, as a hub. I think there's some really fun aspects to it. I think there's a few standout characters that, um, you know, and a few, a few really funny moments um, that you can get while, while just wandering through, going into houses, participating in auctions, um, running away from beggars. You know, like it's all. It's all a good time, um, splooshing and kabooming. 
Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I like I so just as a disclaimer, I guess I haven't played this one um, up to this point this week to sort of catch up with the podcast or anything because I'm not currently do not currently have access to my Wii U, which I think is probably at my family's house in America. Um, but I've played this several times. So, um, you know, it's a, yeah, I think it's a great area. I think the music, as you were saying, um, is really good. There's some real dragon roost Island is one of the classics that's on a lot of people's top 10 lists. Um, I also just think that even just like the title screen music for the wind waker is some of the best, uh, music in the series. So there's a lot, a lot going on in these early parts. Real, real quick question for you, Cody. Uh, your your family they live in Texas, do they not? Uh, yes. Cool. So, would it be accurate to say that Texas is currently holding your Wii U hostage? Um, <laughs> probably yes. <laughs> cool. We'll get with Texas and see if we can do anything about that. Um, yeah. No, I, I think so. Again, like just. Going back to that idea of Windfall Island as a hub town and also kind of remembering other hub towns from the games that we played so far, uh, specifically the 3D ones. To me, this one is kind of – it rides this really nice balance of uh, of being condensed but still like – saturated with interesting things you know i think uh you know you think about hyrule castle town for instance in ocarina of time and like yeah it's got uh you know it's got some room to move around and it's got a few like you've got some mini games you've got some shops one or two characters to talk to um but in some ways it, it kind of feels like you've sort of done everything that there is to do in hyrule castle town in a in a pretty short span of time really and outside of like mask trading quests and stuff if you are into that in Ocarina of Time there's really not too much reason to interact with it past the first kind of few times that you go there um and and I would say like Skyloft definitely doesn't have that problem Skyloft uh you know you do like there's plenty of stuff to continue doing in Skyloft throughout that version of the game but it's it's not quite an apples to apples comparison because the rest of the sky in Skyward Sword is kind of so empty and barren that it's like Skyloft is really all that there is to do <laughs> in some ways outside of like the Pumpkin Island, you know. Um, yeah. And that's definitely definitely not the case with Wind Waker. Um, but it, it's so fascinating. I would put this at probably second on my list of hub towns. Like obviously Clock Town is undefeatable because that's not yeah. just a hub town, that's the hub of in, the entire video game. Um, you know, it's not a it's not functioning without without that town but i think just as a fun hub town to come back to and have a look at what's new and that kind of thing i think this is really up there on my list yeah i agree and and, and to that point just talking about the size of these towns clock town is also massive compared to any of those other ones that we just mentioned and also has you know way more to do uh, but that game world is also just a little bit smaller so yeah. you know um all things in balance right but clock or uh, not clock town but windfall island does this really interesting thing where when you look at it just in terms of how big the island itself is it's actually pretty small like there, there's really not too much space here. Um, it does have a really good use of vertical space 
where as you kind of like move towards the center, there's like several floors, you know, uh, of things to explore and several staircases to go up and uh, lots of buildings to go in and out of. And, you know, like you said, Cody, lots of fascinating characters. Um, And I, I really do like a lot of the characters that we interact with on Windfall Island. The Killer Bees were a standout, uh, definitely kind of the emotional successors to the Bombers Club, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So I, I think that I, I did not expect this to be like the central hub town just because it was so um, geographically small. Um, so I'm not going to pass any judgment on where this lands as far as uh, hub towns for me just yet, because obviously I haven't beaten the game. So uh, I will just be keeping that in mind. But um, just based on how large the Great Sea is and how many islands there are, I was kind of expecting to have multiple islands like Windfall Island that were kind of trading centers or uh, different uh, hubs to to engage with. So um, I'm, I am interested to see how this develops over the course of the game, because I think one key aspect of a successful hub town is how it changes throughout the course of the game. And no spoilers, please, from either of you, because I want to experience that firsthand for myself. But just as a continuance of our conversation from last week about what I'm looking for for a successful uh you know usurper to the crown right is is how does the game change and interact with uh with this hub town as you progress through the game so that's definitely one thing i'm very interested to see now knowing that uh this is kind of the centerpiece of uh of the game i guess um from a yeah i mean set out standpoint I don't want to oversell it like it's not that it's the only you know you've already visited dragon roost island which has you know its own little town its own little hub of characters and you can do a little mini game there um with delivering mail and that sort of thing um so it's not like you know it's the only thing to rely on but it is you know i think the primary um hub that you're going to have reasons to go back to yeah, and talking about Dragon Roost Island specifically, it felt very much like a sl- a more fleshed out version of um, Goron City or Zora's Domain from uh, Ocarina of Time because you know both of those places have characters to interact with, but neither of them really have too much to do. Um, like Zora's Domain has the the diving game. And, uh, you know, Goron City has the blow up the pot with the with the bombs. But like outside of that, neither of them really have a whole lot going on. So Dragon Roost felt like a little more fleshed out version of that, which I appreciated. Uh, You know, I don't think every island needs to be like a a hub or or anything like that. But um, yeah, I, I think it was successful in what it set out to be. And um, I enjoyed Dragon Roost Island quite a bit scenically, artistically, musically. um, And the characters that we meet there are interesting. So I I enjoyed Dragon Roost Island as well. And that's a very interesting thing that you mentioned, Matt, because I think you're right. Both of those examples you just gave, Zora's Domain and Goron City from Ocarina of Time specifically, feel like uh, they feel like places where members of a species all just sort of hang out, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, not necessarily a very lived in location. Mm-hmm. And I think Dragon Roost Island kind of starts to move in a, in a much more kind of realistic direction there. Right. Um, I think a lot of that is just because like one, we meet, you know, we meet a fair amount of characters in that area. Uh, there is definitely like 
an industry that's involved there, you know, like they're, they're postmen, right? And so we get this idea of Dragon Roost Island sort of being the focal point for the Great Seas mail system. Um, and so it all feels very functional in a way that some of those uh, other examples that you just gave maybe don't. Um, and yeah, I, I totally agree. It, it definitely, it definitely kind of pops off of the screen just a little bit more than some of those do, and and feels a little bit more homey. I think. Um, talking about Dragon Roost Island too. I mean, Matt, you said that there are a lot of interesting characters to mention there, but I think it's worth mentioning that uh, canonically, this is the first appearance of the Rito in a Zelda game. Yeah, and they look kind of horrifying, to be a hundred percent honest. Uh, they're 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 not. They're not my favorite visually. Um, the the fact that their beak is just slapped onto a human face, they have red eyes, and that beak takes up half of their face is kind of terrifying, honestly. <laughs> um, I, I definitely appreciate the direction Breath of the Wild took with the Rito over uh, where they are in uh, The Wind Waker. And um, yeah, just my personal thoughts on the Rito specifically. Yeah, I think uh, it's so funny because I was I was kind of, you know, I spent a little bit of time yesterday when I was playing, looking at the character models. And I guess I had just sort of forgotten that, uh, yeah, what they really have is a beak instead of a nose, like a huge beak. And then they just have a human ass looking mouth underneath that beak. Their bottom bottom jaw is still fully human. So, like, (laughs) do they have teeth in their beak like geese or do they have like no teeth? The mechanics of that are very confusing to me. So uh, not to mention the mechanics of their wings where they don't have wings when they're born and then they get wings magically from a dragon scale. And yeah, the whole mechanics of the way the Rito work just did not really make sense or mesh with me much at all. I was actually trying to figure this out, like the anatomy of everything, because in Breath of the Wild, the wings of the Rito are also their hands, right? Uh, but in this game, do they have arms, but then they also have wings that sprout out of their backs? It looks like or, their wings sprout out of their arm bones when they lift them in order to start flapping. Gotcha. That's what it looks like to me, which, again, kind of horrifying. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah, the, keep- look, the half animal thing is always a tricky one to navigate, you know, just like... Some people just go their whole lives without realizing that, you know, the when you see when you see an anime cat girl or something, for example, they probably also have human ears, um, as well as their as well as their cat ears. Just something to something to think about. But you know, those are the kinds of things that you try to try to be like. All right, let's just put some hair here or whatever, so we don't have to worry about it. But I don't know. It's you talk. Odd- it's an odd thing trying to create human animal hybrids. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, Matt, you talk about how you found the Rito to be horrifying. I do have to ask you, was there not a small part of your heart that found Medley to be just adorable? No, Med- Medley is adorable, but I generally think that baby creatures of most types can generally be pretty cute. So uh, while she's not a baby, she is definitely um pre-adolescent because she hasn't grown fully into her wings yet so um yeah she is she's cute i i appreciated her character and it was very uh like tug on your heartstrings when she gets captured and you're like oh no bitch i'm uh i'm not gonna let that happen so yeah i uh i i liked medley that was uh, she was fun 
So, of course, we have a pretty a pretty major event that happens between these two sections of the game we just talked about. You know, we've got Windfall Island, which is where we start. Dragon Roost Island is where we get to and where the dungeon is. Between those two things, we have our first taste of open world travel in this game. And that is the moment where we hop into the King of Red Lions after having acquired the sail on Windfall Island. And we uh, set off across the high seas. And so, Matt... What I have to ask you is, how do you enjoy sailing? Like, was this doing anything for you? And uh, how do you feel about it in comparison to Loftwing travel, which is probably the most analogous thing in a Zelda game to this? Well, like I said in my general thoughts, was I, I loved the sailing. I think it's very fun. I think the mechanics are smooth and it feels great. It um, It's fast, which I appreciate. Um, and it's pretty intuitive. Like I really don't have anything bad at this time to say about sailing. Um, I also love Loftwing travel, um, especially early in the game. Um, and then once you get some more advanced moves, you know, the only advanced move you get really is the, the spin attack. But like, I, I, I am interested to see how I feel about sailing the further into the game we get because Loftwing travel gets, um, somewhat tedious in Skyward Sword towards the end because of what we talked about in Skyward Sword, which is how empty the sky feels. Um, so I, I'm curious to see if the Great Sea ever falls into that trap of just like, okay, now we're doing it again and we're we're sailing on the sea and gotta go find something in some far-flung corner of somewhere. And like that's kind of where loftwing travel started to wear on me not as a mechanic but as the main mechanic of uh macguffin finding um so i'm interested to see how uh sailing progresses through the game but right now i love it well what i will tell you matt is that so you've already seen the blank map for the great sea right yes. uh, it is a seven by seven grid and each each grid space on that map has a unique island and they all have something to do so so not nearly as uh, barren as the sky, which is uh, only a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's night and day, honestly. Like, um, at least as far as my recollection goes, and I played this game about three years ago. So, uh, yeah, I think you're going to be going to be quite pleased as far as that's concerned uh one last thing i wanted to ask about uh while we're talking about sailing is the king of red lions as a character what did you make of him matt yeah he's he's interesting um i already know his backstory unfortunately which kind of sucks that i'm not gonna get to learn that for the first time but um i i like him he uh he has a unique perspective and a unique way of speaking that is very different from any other character so far. Um, I like that he chimes in every once in a while, very fee-esque or fi, as uh, Cody likes to correct my pronunciation. Um, not as frequent, but I did find him chiming in a little bit more frequently than I wanted in the first dungeon. Um, so, yeah, I... I First blush impression is I like him as as kind of the main companion character of yeah. this game, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah and and I guess I would say the same to you, Cody. I mean, 
companion characters, especially in the 3D Zelda games, are are kind of a big – that's a big category to kind of break into, right? A lot of clear favorites and a lot of uh, a lot of options that some people are not quite as fond of. Uh, so I guess I'm kind of wondering, you know, how do you feel about the King of Red Lions when you stack them up against Navi or, you know, Fee Cattle. or Midna or whatever? Yeah, I mean – I, th- I think he's up there. Um, I don't know. I have a lot of strong opinions about the King of Red Lions that I won't say because uh, it's all about later, you know, spoilers and story stuff. Um, but just as a companion character, I think that's, you know, he's fun without being over- overbearing, which I think was the problem people had with the N64 era of companions. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, real quick, this is, you know, obviously we're going to have Z-targeting later where we talk about our absolute favorite characters from this section of the game. But I wanted to ask everybody on the call right now, who was your favorite character that you ran into on Windfall Island? And we'll go to you first, Cody. Um, so, well, I, oh, geez, there's, there's, there's like three or four that I'm thinking of, but I think I'll go with the rich guy. Um, I don't know if you've tried to visit the rich guy's house and break his pots. Yeah. I did not this time. Yeah, I did, unfortunately. I lost about 80 rupees on that. Um, you know, I, I just I just enjoyed that as a bit of a... Uh, actually, consequences for your actions um, thing where Link just loves to break into people's homes and then smash all their stuff to loot through it for valuables. Um, and to be called out on it, I think, is just a funny funny moment and a, a funny character. Matt, how about you? So my immediate first blush was uh, the lady outside of the potion shop who styles herself as a finer than the younger ladies on the island. <laughs> and uh, I was like, wow, okay, Miss Wannabe Cougar. Um, thank you for that, and I will be on my way. So she uh, she stood out to me for that reason. She's uh, She is definitely very, very enamored of her own uh, of her own appearance there's no getting around that yeah for sure so uh my choice is going to be disco dancing man uh also known as windfall elvis who uh <laughs> who hangs out up by the tombstone um yeah you know this guy i, I respect his vibe he's uh he's he's the, he's just there to dance in the sunshine in an incredible outfit uh his uh you know he's got that nice high collar and deep v combo um, great head of hair and he's got tassels, which I mean, really this dude, uh, I don't know if, uh, I don't know if the music scene is really a, a thing that, uh, happens a lot on the great sea, but I, I feel like this guy could, uh, you know, he could really be the, the Elton John of the great sea. You know, I kind of, I have that feeling about him. I, I really, I think he could go places with his talent. But who's to say? I don't think that this game really ever gives us the opportunity to figure that out. But with all that said, uh, does anybody else have anything generally about this section of the game they want to say before we move on to talking about the dungeon? Uh, well, just my my view on sailing is that it's very good. Um, I just think that, I don't know, it's a, it's a controversial thing because some people really like this style and some people are like, oh, well, you're just not doing anything for a while. and um, 
But, you know, a lot of that's very arbitrary depending on what you think is. Like Ocarina of Time, for example, had a more empty overworld than this in terms of the amount that you actually had to do. Like mostly where I spent my time was just running between locations on the overworld. Occasionally I'd be attacked by a P-hat or something and there were, you know, a couple of holes in the ground that you could fall into if you bombed a rock. But, like, for me, that's emptier than the Wind Waker. But to other people, they see the Wind Waker sailing and they're, like, stressed out because they're not doing anything, you know. Um, But for me, I enjoy the vibes of it all. Yeah, I I, I definitely think, and, of course, there's kind of a, a solution that Nintendo introduced into the HD version of this game, which we have not acquired yet, but... uh there is a faster sale that you can acquire later in the game, which drastically speeds up your sale time. And that's kind of a, a direct response to this feedback that a lot of people had, which is that it can feel a little slow getting from place to place on the Great Sea. I'm with you, Cody. I never really ever felt that that was a problem. Um, even when you're not getting to a main island, it's still fun to you know seek out treasure, to kind of uh, sail through the uh, the barrel obstacles to get rupees, uh, to get into combat encounters with pirate ships. Um, there's a really fun little pirate outpost uh, between Windfall Island and Dragon Roost Island. It's just like a little a little hut on the sea, really. Uh, you climb up there. There's just two Bacoblins, but, you know, you kill those guys, and there's a, a chest with some rupees to be found. And it's the kind of thing that just takes a few seconds to to take care of, but it does add flavor and character to the world. And more than anything else, it really fits thematically with the Great Sea, I think one of the things that makes the overworld of some of the 3D games feel a little empty uh, years down the road, especially Twilight Princess and Breath of the Wild, or sorry, Twilight Princess and Ocarina of Time, um, is that, yeah, they've got these giant, uh, these giant overworlds, uh, land-based overworlds, and they can kind of start to feel pretty empty after a little while. Um, and the nice thing about the Great Sea is that, I mean, yes, I guess that's sort of true as well, but it feels more appropriate to me thematically because if you were sailing on the ocean, then that's just kind of how it it would be, you know, that kind of helps like the fiction of the thing kind of helps cover some distance for me. I will say those two bacoblins on the hut that I was just talking about, Matt, there is a really cool thing that uh, can happen with enemy encounters in this game that I had completely forgotten about. Uh, I got up on top of that hut and I started uh, slashing away at one of these bacoblins with my sword, right? And he flies off towards the edge, but he catches onto the edge at the last second and is like hanging onto the edge of the hut. Uh, but his like legs are dangling off. He's like, you know, reaching up at you, like trying to get back, right? Yeah. And you just like poke him one time and then th- then he flies off, you know? Yeah, I did that to a bacoblin on the bridge in uh, one of the bridges in Dragon Roost dungeon and that was really fun it's so fun it's like it's such a little thing but it's the kind of characterization in enemy encounters that just helps things to feel vibrant you know and and entertaining and i don't know i just i really loved it i I will say the while i don't necessarily love the chibi art style for the the characters and the humans uh it's really fun for most of the enemies i think the moblins are a little bit goofy and ridiculous more so than i would generally like but like the bokoblins are great and the lava centipedes that are in the dungeons are really cool this boss was crazy cool like yeah there was some really cool things that happened um that i enjoyed quite a lot 
Cool. Well, with that being said, let's move on to part three, which is the dungeon map, where we talk about this week's dungeon from mechanics to music and more. The dungeon this week is, of course, Dragon Roost Cavern. And uh, this is uh, this is our fire dungeon for this game. Uh, got right a, out of the gate. Right out of the gate. Got a lot of lava here. Um, some big Dodongo's Cavern vibes, mm. honestly, is is kind of uh, something that I that I always feel when I go into this one. Cody, I'm gonna I'm gonna bounce it to you first. I know that you haven't played this super recently, but what is your recollection of this first dungeon of the game? Um, look, I I think this is a really fun uh, little dungeon um, for I guess the not quite first dungeon, but Obviously, um, you would have talked about last week that we sort of started with a a stealth sequence uh, kind of dungeon rather than a more traditional get the get the item, use that item to complete more stuff in the in the level, and then eventually use that item to defeat the boss by attacking it. You know, probably three times. Um, you know, it's a very it's very traditional in in that formula. Um, but I think it's a really good version of it. And I really like the grappling hook as an item. Yeah, I definitely going to talk about the grappling hook, just the grappling hook, just a little bit more here in a second. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I always forget how substantial this dungeon actually is. Uh, I always get to it and I always think, OK, first dungeon, let's get this out of the way pretty quick. And, you know, 30 to 45 minutes later, I'm sort of still messing around with it and having a having a good time with it. And I think that that's actually a really refreshing thing. Honestly, we've talked a lot on this podcast about how first dungeons and Zelda games typically tend to be highly introductory, you know, very training wheels, baby's first dungeon sort of, you know, thinking about the Deku tree. Right. Um, is is kind of the the prime example there. Um, and, and this dungeon definitely does not fit into that mold really at all. Uh, it's got several different floors. It's got a decent amount of like backtracking and key based exploration, you know, um, enemies that are I wouldn't necessarily say super hard, but a good density of enemies and a good variety of enemy types that require different like responses uh some some very good lava based puzzles honestly like you know water uh uh like you know water petrifying lava making platforms kind of gameplay um yeah there's there's just a lot more going on here i think than we're typically used to getting in a first dungeon for a zelda game is that kind of what you found to be the case matt yeah, this was, uh, I think I told you, probably my favorite first dungeon that I can remember. Um, I found it odd that we were just going straight into a lava cavern without any type of heat protection. Um, every other game I can think of that has, you know, a 3D game anyway, that has some type of lava cavern, you have to have some version of heat protection. So that was a little odd to me, but um, I quickly got over that because it's fun. It's fun. Um, I didn't feel the enemy density quite as much as you, I guess. Um, but now that you think, now that you're talking about it, there's definitely a large variety of enemies. I really appreciated the um, inside outside portion. Um, I appreciated the kind of not necessarily mini boss fight, but the the fight where you have to free medley and it's you know multiple bokoblins and then a moblin gets ridiculously carried up to the top of the mountain by its butt um which i didn't love but um the fight was fun um 
the puzzles were great. The the water petrifying uh, the lava immediately reminded me of both of the fire dungeons in um, Skyward Sword uh, with the little water pods that you stab and throw at the lava. So I thought, you know, this being obviously the first introduction of that, um, but my second experience with it was really uh, fun for me. Um, and I had a note specifically written down about being able to cut the uh, ropes on the bridges and the um, the the giant stone plinth thing you have to drop. Like, I thought that was really cool and a good use of environmental game building that is kind of newer to Zelda. There was a little bit of this in Majora's Mask, specifically with Snowpeak. Um snow peak temple where you have to hit the ice blocks on the in the middle ring but that's like the other big thing i can think of i guess an ocarina of time you can shoot ladders with a um with your slingshot to drop them from the ceiling but like there's really not a lot like i thought this was a very well done um environmental gameplay um yeah it, it was a really great dungeon um the the what's what is it grappling hook yeah the grappling hook is so indiana jones like in such a badass way it's so it's really fun i think it's more fun than a hook shot just because it's more tactile well i mean the hook shot i mean sure i i guess it, it definitely kind of does exist in that category of zelda item but the thing that i was immediately comparing it to was the whip that we get in skyward sword yeah and i think that this is far far and above better than that i i don't know i think the whip having some combat ability just to stun enemies this one has some combat ability i i mean i was able to hit the bird with it and pull the feather off but it didn't stun the bird so uh let's see this will definitely one shot keys which is fun oh um it will so it stuns the uh lava centipedes if you hit them in the eye oh that's actually how did you so there's the puzzle where you have to stun the centipede pick it up and set it on the switch how did you stun it yeah i mean if you just hit it in the eye a couple times it it goes into a ball okay cool yeah uh it does that immediately if you do it with the grappling hook so uh, but then you know like you said it also is useful for pulling resources and spoils off of enemies it's definitely not like a powerful weapon in any meaningful way but i don't know there's something about it um I think it it feels better like it's animation is better and it's more intuitive. I think that mostly comes from the fact that on Skyward Sword, you had to use your motion control for the whip, which didn't always work exactly the way you wanted it to. Um, But yeah, I I really like the grappling. Well, it's got more reach as well. I think that's part of it, too. Yeah, it's it's longer reach. Yeah. Uh, and, And also, you know, I think grappling in video games can feel kind of tedious sometimes uh especially if like the if if it's not like designed well if the if the physics of it aren't satisfying mm-hmm. and i think in this game they are satisfying and so it was a it was a fun little way to get past obstacles uh in my mind also just a quick note if you're playing this game on hero mode uh, like i am and you're relying on potions and fairies and heart containers to refill your health this dungeon is a great place to farm for red chew jelly yep I got a lot of red chew jelly um, in this dungeon. I actually um, went back to the beginning of the dungeon to when I got the grappling hook to go find that spoils chest that was off to the side because I enjoyed the grappling so much that I wanted to see where that went. Um, it was it was so fun. Cody, you mentioned the grappling hook too just a second ago. Is this uh, is this a you know a pretty successful Zelda item in in your opinion? 
Yeah, I think it's, you know, because there's various takes on basically the hookshot over over various games, and this is sort of a more uh, retro interpretation, I guess, uh, as opposed to the Batman future tech that the Ocarina of Time hookshot is. Um, you know, this is a simple hook onto something and, you know, swing across the ropes um, kind of thing. And I think it's fun. It's useful for more things than just, you know, you can use it to you can use it to steal items from enemies and all this kind of stuff. And it's sort of just a, a nice little nice little item, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. So um, I, I do just want to mention, too, there is one element of this item that you haven't had a chance to really get acquainted with yet, Matt. Mm-hmm. It mentions it in the tooltip whenever you get it the first time. But uh, when you're sailing on your boat from here on out, mm-hmm. this is actually uh, – you, you now have the ability to pull treasure up from the seafloor. Oh, yay. With this, yeah. That's good. Um, it turns into like a little a little uh, treasure hook on the back of your boat that you can pull chests up with. Nice. So there you go. Uh, from that perspective, it is actually like – I think the further that you go into this game, the less and less that you use the grappling hook in like a dungeon scenario. Right. But because it is permanently attached to your boat, uh, you are kind of using it for the remainder of the game. So it's actually a pretty impactful item from that perspective. Talking about the mini boss fight that you mentioned, Matt, you know, you fight those two bokoblins and then a moblin gets dropped in. You have to fight that guy. I actually really enjoyed the moblin fight just because of the different way that you kind of can do combat with that enemy right obviously uh he's not very tanky it doesn't take a ton of hits to kill this guy but if you want to try and do it in a more cautious way whereas like you're waiting for parries you know to kind of like roll around and disarm him and pick up his weapon and all that Mm -hmm. it, it is really fun uh especially because he's got some specialized animations and some attack patterns that happen once he's disarmed um he actually does a a pretty beefy amount of damage if you get hit by either his little halberd that he's got or uh once you take that away from him he will he will rush you and attack you with his fists um and yeah i don't know it's one of those things where i wish that that enemy actually did have a little bit more health behind it and put me in a situation where i had to hang in a fight with him just a little bit longer (laughs) to where you know the player is incentivized to kind of figure out the breadth of what that encounter can kind of bring to the table yeah and to be clear i didn't i loved the fight like the fight was good i didn't love that it was carried up to the top of the mountain by its buttocks i thought that was just ridiculous (laughs) the 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 very specific personality of this game seems to be something that you're continuing to kind of butt up against it's like i'm not i don't think every game needs to take itself too seriously right but there's also just a level of childishness and ridiculousness that i don't necessarily love anymore as i approach 30 um so it's stuff like that that's just like over the top yeah agree to disagree okay cool i like it matt i like it i like the fight the fight is good the combat no i like all of it yeah i know you did but um (laughs) i also thought it was kind of funny how um i picked up the halberd after i killed it and link just holds it like a long sword i thought that was kind of (laughs) funny 
He's like, how how do I spear? I don't know how to spear. I will just swing like sword. <laughs> it's just kind of funny to me. Link clearly does not know the ways of the halberd. No, very clearly. <laughs> but while we're talking about picking up items from enemies, one thing I did like about this dungeon is that it has several different obstacles that require you to learn how to use items dropped by enemies to overcome, right? Yep. Um, and so whether it's picking up the heavier sword dropped by a bacoblin and using it to knock down a sturdy wooden barricade or whether it's uh learning that whenever that heavy sword is not available you have to find ways to do it by lighting it on fire with a stick you know yeah for for this being the lava dungeon this is some of the most flammable wood i've ever seen in my entire life so i thought that was an interesting uh design choice by the rito to make their uh, dungeon out of extremely flammable wood Cody, I know we talked about this a little bit last week, and I wanted to get your opinion on it. I was mentioning how I really enjoyed this game's whole system of being able to disarm enemies and take their weapons from them and was sort of lamenting how that wasn't something that was done a lot between this game and Breath of the Wild. Uh, Where are you at with that mechanic? Yeah, I think the combat combat in The Wind Waker is some of the smoothest – in the series, I think, just in general. Um, like, Skyward Sword gets more complex and Breath of the Wild has more options, but, like, just in terms of the feeling of satisfaction of, like, the prompt comes up and you press the A button and Link rolls behind them and does a counter or, you know, you you steal their weapon and then hit them with it kind of thing. Um, I think that's really good in The Wind Waker. Um I think it's just a very, yeah, I guess smooth is probably the word that I'd use for it. Yeah. And uh, I know you said you didn't want to talk about Twilight Princess too much. And I don't know, how, how recently have you played Twilight Princess? Just wondering. Um, oh, It's probably two or three years at this point. Um, I haven't been back to some of the newer ones in in a while i think i've been replaying through a lot of the older ones that are on the virtual console the switch virtual console in the last few years but um, yeah yeah but yeah need to yeah. need to replay this one and twilight princess soon yeah my my whole point last week was just that i think it's it's so interesting how well the combat in this game has held up in comparison to twilight princess uh, where i think movement and combat both feel a little bit more clunky than they do in this game which is older than that one is but uh, anywho, that's neither here nor there. Uh, yeah, Twilight Princess is, I don't know, the, I mean, when you get to it, you'll get to it, but um, I didn't I didn't feel like the Wii added that much to it in terms of the waggle controls and everything. Yep, totally agree. All right, well, we've talked about the dungeon, and I think that that means it's time to get into the final encounter of the dungeon, which is, of course, the dungeon boss. And, uh, of course, no dungeon boss is good if we don't have a suitably epic encounter to go along with it, suitably epic arena. And uh, I think that this boss definitely has all of that. Great design, great arena, great mechanics. This boss is, of course, Goma, another uh, incarnation of that classic Zelda enemy. Uh, I did think it was very interesting that the boss's name was not displayed on the screen. Okay, I'm glad I didn't just miss it. I have that written down in my notes where I was like, did we not get a name for this? Like, that was kind of weird to me that we didn't get a a name. Um, So I'm glad I didn't just miss it. And I'm wondering, I I can't remember, Cody, do you know if, 
is this a thing that's only done this one time in the game or like do we get boss names later on because i seem to remember like mulgara for instance i i I seem to remember that that boss's name gets displayed when you go into that boss fight but i'm not sure about that specific little detail without having played it recently to be honest yeah i would need to go back and and look it up it's it's definitely something that like I don't know if they were trying to maybe do this experimental thing where they they felt like it wasn't necessary to have the boss's name at the top of the boss fight. Um, I don't know. I miss it. I, I kind of like it, you know, and, and I, re- I always like it when they display the boss's name and then add a little bit of flavor text. Like if it had been Goma subterranean lava arachnid or diabolical. <laughs> uh, flaming I, I, spider whatever i you was know, gonna like. go with uh i was gonna go with uh a lava lava based parasite or something because it looks kind of like a parasite like a like a big uh nasty tick crossed with a spider crab like it was pretty gross it definitely doesn't look as purely um spidery as, as purely spider as traditional incarnations of goma do uh I, yeah i think you're right matt it's definitely got a little bit more of like a crustacean yeah crustacean is the right yeah maybe i don't know i i look 10 out of 10 on on presentation for boss fight uh around the clock like or around the horn like holy cow um the arena was cool immediately walking in and seeing the dragon's tail hanging and and it was hooked so i i automatically knew that my uh, obviously the dungeon item uh was going to come into play and uh Big pit of lava was very Dodongo's cavern, and um, then the uh, the just him coming out of the lava was so epic and it's not scary is not the right word just because I don't know uh, I'm sensitized to it I guess but man it was it was ten out of ten on the uh, on the boss presentation uh, for this for this dungeon. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I do think it's really funny too because we've got this very interesting layering of of the dungeon space, right? Like we know we've got this giant dragon sitting on top of it, and the whole mystery is we've got to find out why the dragon is so pissed off, right? And so we get into this chamber directly underneath of where the dragon's tail is, and we pretty immediately see it's like, oh, this is why the dragon's pissed off. This crazy like spider lobster has been, you know, nomming on its tail, you know. <laughs> Although the tail looks no worse for wear, which I find kind of interesting. It's like that's cutter. It has a punch. It's like that's that's pretty understandable, right? I mean, I, I guess I get why Valu is is pissed off in this moment. Yeah, I would be pretty pissed off if some bug was biting my ass all day every day. Um, also, it does answer the question that I had immediately, which was why does Valu not just pull his tail out of the volcano? And it's because it's stuck. So. It is. It is stuck. Yes. Yeah. Poor Valu. Poor Valu. And we haven't really mentioned Valu yet either. I, I guess Valu is a part of this dungeon, so it is sort of appropriate to get into into that character. I mean, he is he is sideline character at best, in my opinion. Just like he doesn't have anything to do other than being the object of uh, the the tormentations of Goma. But this is so interesting because we, we talked Cody with you a few episodes ago about the difference in presentations of dragons within Zelda games. Right. And like what constitutes a dragon and when does it look like a snake versus when does it look like a more medieval dragon and whatnot? And I think uh, it's so funny because Valu 
is definitely in that latter category of like, oh, you look like a Disney dragon, basically. Yeah. And he's very Disney-esque because he is in chibi art style and he's fat. What are, uh, Cody, what are your thoughts on Balu and Goma and, and all of that? Oh, I mean, I I think Valu is an interesting character. Like, we always see a, well, not always, but, you know, the idea of a dragon in the, in the lava mountain is something that's come up several times in the series, and usually it's an enemy or a boss. And this time, it's the guardian of the Rito people, um, which I think is just a a fun twist on, like, obviously we've been talking about our friends Barbara and uh, <laughs> Volvagia. And, yeah. and I think Valu there is meant to be sort of similar but different, um, you know, the same... You know, like a a dragon, a dragon in on the mountain, starting with a V. Um, but like this one's a friendly one, and is responsible for wings for the Rito and all of this kind of thing. Yeah, it it definitely kind of rides that line. It, it's definitely more in the camp of like maybe a Dinral Farosh Nadra style, or not style, but like it's not an enemy. It's more of like a like a, a demigod of the world force of you know? nature yeah or the water dragon i guess it's 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 actually i, th- I think volu has quite a lot in common with the skyward sword incarnations of dragons yeah i was thinking the same thing and i actually had an interesting kind of thought process here where um you know the rito talk about how they grow their wings from getting a scale from volu and i thought it was kind of interesting to theorize because we don't know for certain in breath of the wild what if the reason that the Rito live in um, Din Rall's region is the, the same region, the same reason, right? Like, what if they have to uh, petition Din Rall for a scale in order to, you know, become fully uh, flight enabled versions of themselves? Like, I, I think that's kind of a neat. I don't know that that's true, and I think it's probably not, but I, I think it's a neat thought exercise. Somebody log that under head cannon. Of course, we've gotten a little bit of field from our conversation around the boss fight with Goma. Uh, not completely off topic because Valu is present for this entire boss fight, right? right. <laughs> or at least Valu's yeah, yeah. tail is. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. Look, I think that this is a very entertaining boss fight, and I will say I Wind Waker is one of those games where I've played it. This is like my fourth time playing it, and I... I don't have it committed to memory quite the same way that I do Ocarina of Time or Majora's Mask or whatever. And every time I get to this boss, I always spend a few minutes kind of forgetting how to go about it because like you're always kind of distracted by the huge glowing eye and thinking, oh, I need to stun that and then I can hit because because it's Zelda, right? Like that's what we have to do. We have to hit the eye and that's how we kill the boss. And yes, eventually we do get there, but none of that is possible to do at all without first using the grapple to bring the ceiling down on top of Goma. You got to do that several times and then you can start attacking the eye. I thought that was a nice subversion of expectations, right? Where you have to kind of like observe the arena and see what there is to work with before you're actually able to start doing damage to this boss. Yeah, especially for a first dungeon, I thought it was interesting that they introduced a mechanic outside of hit it in the eye. And um, I will admit that I 
I spent two full heart containers um, trying to use the grappling hook to either hook one of those mandibles to bring him down towards me or to just hit like the Like Kloptos, right? Yeah, I yeah. was really trying to, to like hit a body part and like wrangle this giant lava monster, which in hindsight is kind of ridiculous because it's so massive. But I was like, man, maybe I have to like do that first and I know I'm going to have to eventually hook that tail because it looks like a hook. But uh, I can't imagine that I'm going to have to do that first, especially when this giant tick is right in my face. So that was interesting to... Um, to get hurt quite a few times before I, you know, changed tactic to do that and then uh, hit the eyeball. So that was, I thought that that was really great boss design. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, and of course, once you kind of get past that phase of it, there's not really too much left to do. Then we are firmly back and hit it in the eye territory Smack it in the eyeball. And then the boss dies pretty quick. But all that being said, I still think it's a it's it's a clear step up over Goma in Ocarina of Time, for oh, instance. Oh, absolutely. You know? No question. Or it's it's sort of tough to compare first dungeons with Majora's Mask because I feel like all four dungeons in Majora's Mask are, are, are pretty, pretty complex. But you know, I, I I think again, it's a very fitting end to what is a substantial and very fun first dungeon of this of this game. Um, it leaves an incredible first impression, and I I enjoyed it thoroughly all the way through. Cody, do you have anything else you want to say about Dragon Roost Cavern before we move on to the next uh, yeah, I next mean, topics of conversation? I guess like the just on the comparisons to Majora's Mask because that's you know I go back and forth on which game is better. I I do tend to think that the Wind Waker is less finicky in its dungeons. Um, like Majora's Mask, I do enjoy the dungeons, but there are points that I'm like, oh, I don't want to deal with it. I, I don't want to want to go on roll around this thing in the Snow Temple and then fall seven floors again and then climb up for my 12th attempt. Well, um, who among us hasn't been there? Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, whereas Wind Waker just seems so like polished, you know, in a way that I think I think is is really interesting, and I think that's one of the things that's got that it's got going for it as you know, um, something that stands out. Like, I mean, a lot of all Zelda games are polished to an extent because Nintendo is good at that, but Wind Waker just really feels like a a refinement in a lot of ways of, of what they were doing before. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's something we're going to continue talking about a lot as we go through this game and something that I'm uh, very interested to continue getting your opinions on, Matt, because, uh, you know, the dungeons and the quality of the dungeons typically tend to be one of those things that can move a Zelda game up or down in a ranking. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm I'm going to take one second to to talk about polish and and a nitpicky negative category because we haven't had very much of that. So I I want to just again, we're an objective uh, trying to be as objective as possible. Matt, why do you hate Wind Waker so much? <sighs> Here we go. Matt the Debbie Downer. Uh, look, I'm just trying to live up to our promise to the people that we're objective about games. Anyway, look, if we're the parents on this podcast, I just want to say I'm the fun parent. That's for sure. And you're the one that tells the kids they can't have any more candy and then they hate you. That is true, both in real <laughs> life and in the podcast. So, yeah, that's accurate. Um, just one thing that I found 
in both sections of the game so far to not be super great is like the slide mechanic um, around walls and um, specifically in this section where I found myself just like it would randomly take me out of sliding across the this little wall and I would fall um, down and then it would start me all the way back over at the very bottom and those stupid birds would respawn and I'd have to do basically the whole thing over again, which frustrated me a little bit. And like I couldn't figure out why that was happening and never really did until I finally just kind of got past it. I don't know if the A button on my uh, secondhand Wii U just wasn't like holding down correctly or, or what was going on. But um, yeah, that was I think the slide mechanic isn't super great. Um, I, I actually it. also, you know, I, I think uh, I've said I think the movement in this game is uniformly excellent and I still stand by that. I will say that sidle is not my favorite thing in the world to do. And a lot of that is just because it kind of feels a little slow. You know, it yeah. takes a little while to completely get sidled all the way across a little ledge. And it <laughs> doesn't really seem it doesn't add anything right like to me there is no difference between sidling across this ledge or just walking across timing <laughs> timing the walk so that you don't get hit by the lava burst like what's they, the difference they should have put the king zora sound effect while we sidle would have made it so much better uh Maybe the first time after that, probably not. All right. Your nitpick is noted, Matt. Are you happy now? I, I, I am. I am happy. Yes. Good. I'm, I hope you're proud of yourself. All right. Let's move on to part four, which is Bloopy Trails, where we talk about uh, interesting things that diverted our attention this week. I'm going to go first. Again, you know, we have room for a few side quests at this point in the game. Not a ton. The game has not completely opened up yet. I will say that uh, I'm going to I'm going to do my overall pick as the thing that I enjoyed the most, and then a, a fun little secondary one. Uh, so I actually spent a lot of time doing the uh, the Rito mail sorting minigame, which was a ton of fun and just a super easy way to get some rupees. I think that's a really fun little minigame. Um, I, I like it just as much as I like any shooting gallery or whatever. It's fun for similar reasons. Um, I like it way more than I like the Battleship minigame on Windfall Island, I didn't like the Battleship which is like a total rupee sink. Uh yeah, not a fan of the battleship minigame. Um, but yeah, Are you I, getting I really more like splooshes than kabooms. <laughs> way <laughs> more sploosh. Way more splooshes. Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> way way more splooshes than anybody in Texas would would ever like to have. Um, yeah, no, yeah. I, I just I tried that game four times and just busted out every single time. And I was like, all right, I'm I'm done. I'm done. That's it. That's it. Uh, so yeah, retail mail sorting mini game. I really enjoy it. Uh, but yeah, the other one was, uh, so have you discovered yet what a, what the purpose of a Hioi pair is? Yeah. I, uh, you, you control seagulls with it. Did you do that? I did. Did, what, what did you, what did you manage to accomplish with this, with this power? I used a seagull to blow up that trail of bombs that is on the retail. Yes. I'm gl- yes. Hey, cool. Yeah, I'm glad woo. you got there. So um, go me. So you have now discovered Wind Waker's equivalent of uh, the beetle. Oh, well, that's cool. Except also animal cruelty. Well, I think the seagull's fine. I mean, hey, it, it blew up a string of bombs. <laughs> How was that seagull not fried chicken? 
Cody's right. We fed it a pear. Okay. All right. I'm just going to not think too hard about it. I mean, we did uh, we did completely supersede its agency as a living being. <laughs> Mind control's not cool, man. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to choose not to think too hard about that. So we're going to just enjoy the fact that I figured that out. I'll buy me onesie. There you go. I'm proud of you, Matt. Very Thank proud you. of you. Uh, Matt, uh, Bluebee Trails. Cody, go first. Oh, uh, Matt says Cody go first because uh, I guess Matt needs a little bit more time to think. So I guess, you know, for you, Cody, there's a there's a lot of stuff that kind of would pop out on Windfall Island at least, right? Mm. For Bloopy Trails? Um, yeah, uh, there's uh, – I'm trying to think of which which things are available now and which things are not available yet. Um, so I think the uh, – the killer bees one where you kind of you have to go find the kids and get them back in school is probably the big one at this point. Yeah, yeah, the the killer bees is good. Um the just I I just enjoy the just the sailing in general as a oh, here's a little island um experience. I think is something that that I really enjoy just as a as a whole as a as a side quest adventure. But um yeah, the the auctioneering is any auctioneering available at this point? No. No, it's not because we are not currently able to uh change from day to night. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. I was gonna say the auctioneering. So all right, well I'll just say um I'll just say the um the sploosh kaboom then. <laughs> sploosh kaboom, there you go. <laughs> Yeah, so so for me, I did the Killer Bees hide-and-seek and, seek and uh, thoroughly thrashed them at their own game, which was satisfying for me, having been bullied in uh, school for, for quite a bit of my life. It was fun to beat the bullies at their own game. That was uh, always satisfying. Uh, I did the maze in the back of Tingle's uh, cell to get the photo box. With the rats? Yeah! And those rats are really mean. I don't like them. They're very rude. <laughs> They're so happy about dropping you in the ocean. I know. That's so mean. Um, so I did that. Um, did the mail sorting game a lot as well. It was so much fun. Very cathartic. Just like sit there and uh, play and match the, match the icon. I don't know. It was great. Um, <laughs> it's good to feel successful at something. Right? <laughs> I know, right? It, feel, it feels very nice. I could totally be a mail sorter at USPS and do it 10 times better than them. Yeah, you don't want that job. No, you don't want that job. Don't ever do that job. But for those of you who may be listening who do do that job, we thank you for your service for getting mail to people. So thank you for your hard work. Um, what else? I did. I attacked that pirate outpost you talked about while sailing. That was fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I found Zephos, the god of the winds, by visiting his little shrine. So we're actually going to talk about... I feeling that's not a bloopy trail, but I did it yeah. like, as the first thing I did on Dragon Rooster. We're actually going to talk about that a little bit later because uh, I know that you can technically do that before you go and do the dungeon. Uh, you do get a, a prompt from Medley at the end of the dungeon to go do that. Yeah. And so I think we're going to roll that into the story section of, of next week. Oh, fine. But yes, Matt is correct. You can visit Zephos before or after the dungeon if you want. I did it before. There you go. Uh, yeah, that was that was kind of what I did. Um, it was fun. Cool. Well, in that case, let's move on to part five, which is Z-targeting, where we lock on to fascinating characters or enemies that we happen to cross. Um 
I'm going to go ahead and go first so that Matt and Cody both have a chance to think on their Z-targeting picks for this week. It's really – it's so hard because there are so many characters with so much personality mm-hmm. in this section of, of the game. And some of them I really enjoy but I'm intentionally not choosing here because I know that we're going to get – more experiences with them later and more uh, chances to make them my Z targeting pick. Um, And so really it's not even going to be a main character for me this week, just somebody with a lot of personality. And as much as I don't like the sploosh kaboom mini game, I'm going to pick the dude who operates that mini game. Man, he goes a hundred percent because dude, talk about, talk about committing to a bit like this guy you know who this guy is he went to college he was one of those he was one of those theater kids that was in high school and then college right and they they get their major in theater right maybe musical theater they want to go make it big on broadway but it never it never really clicks <laughs> and then at some point they just get plugged into like the renaissance fair circuit right you know they're like kind of one of those sort of performers and not knocking it at all because no, there's love those people. We love those people. There's a nobility in that. But this guy definitely, you know, he's got he's got his character figured out. Yeah. Right. You know, he's great. His delivery of, of the admiral is uh, man. He goes one hundred and ten percent and he is fantastic. And to quote our favorite podcast, all I do is bits, 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 no matter what. Yep. Uh, he's definitely got his bit. He knows what it is and he goes for it hard. Uh, you know, in his own super wise words, uh, the enemies have retreated or something. <laughs> something like that. I never won. So I, I don't know. I don't know what he says when you win, but uh, I, I like him, too. He's so, yeah, sploosh kaboom minigame guy. Really enjoyed him. Cody, how about yourself? You got a Z targeting pick for this week? Yeah, I'll go with Quill the Postman. Uh, Yeah, he's awesome. Because, you know, we should respect our mail carriers um, who do important work, um, you know, under various levels of of funding from the government. Um, Sometimes none. Sometimes none. (laughs) but, you know, as someone who has just just had an election that was done by mail in which everyone got their, got their ballots in the mail and then they had a couple of weeks to mail it back, um, I've, I've had a lot of experience with our postage system and it's very exciting to, you know. I, I don't know if you've ever had the thrill of being, you know, as young as you are, um, of of sending someone a letter in the mail by putting a stamp on it and delivering it to a post box, um, but you know. Oh, we we do it every month with the trading cards. Ah, uh, yes, of course for Patreon. But there's just something something in that experience that's like, you know, nostalgic or like, oh wow, I'm I can I can write anything, I can I can just you know say oh hi how are you and i put it in a letter and i send it and it will find its way to america or something um and i just think that's you know that's a cool thing so uh shout out to the postman cody i just love like this this highly idealized tapestry of australia that you are weaving for us on this episode of the podcast i mean in my mind australia is now this like mr rogers utopia where the elections are free of controversy and the mail service is like on Effective. is wholesome and on time like <laughs> that's right Every, everything's on time 
the trains are on time, the post is on time. Uh, none of this is true, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's and- uh, when it when it is true, um, it's really good. Now the fantasy is dispelled. Australia, just like everywhere else. <laughs> With way more things that can kill you. <laughs> okay. All right, Matt, Z-targeting for the week. You're up. Um, so I'm going to go with uh, Miss Wannabe Cougar just because she really made an impression on me right out of the gate. And uh, it was hard to shake that the rest of the time I was on Windfall. Every time I would walk past her, I'd like step to the other side of the road and just be like, I'm not looking at you and like, please don't talk to me. And yeah, she, she made a lasting impression. Good pick, Matt. Good pick. All right. Well, that, of course, brings us to part six, which is our final thoughts, where we let Matt wrap up this section of the game in as succinct a way as he can possibly do. Extra succinct if you can make that happen, because Lord knows we probably got 12 auxiliary Sacred Realms rundown sections that uh, Cody is going to drop on us as soon as we get done with this. So. Yeah, for sure. Um, so this section of the game uh, starts us off and introduces us uh, introduces us to our companion for the rest of the game and the King of Red Lions, who is an interesting character in the form of a anthropomorphic talking boat. Uh, very much uh, enjoy him. Bodie McBoatface in the play. <laughs> <laughs> um, Windfall Island is is a truly uh, wonderful uh little hub world that or a little hub island that we get to enjoy with full of a uh, awesome characters and and strong characterizations um introduces us to a, a really great uh open world exploration mechanic in sailing uh, the great sea excellent 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 music all the way around um taking us to our first uh island um, outside of Outset Island, of course, um, where the colorful Rito people live and uh, introducing us to the character of Medley and Quill and the Chieftain and I uh, forget the prince's name, whatever the prince's Kamali. name. Kamali. Yeah, him. Uh, and really capping it off with a truly phenomenal first dungeon uh, and an awesome uh, epic first boss battle um, and granting us uh, probably one of the more versatile and useful items that we'll have in the game. So uh, just a really strong section of the game to start out with uh, setting us up with a good tone of adventure and exploration and um, very much looking forward to where we go next in the great sea. Well done, as always, Matt. Of course, this is a Cody Davies episode. So this is the point in the podcast where we're just going to sit back and we're going to say, Cody Davies, do your worst. All right. Well, welcome, everybody, to part seven, um, which, as we all know, is Cody's tips and tricks. Um, today's tip, you know that bait that you can use to feed rats or whatever? Yep. You can also feed it to mini blends and they'll leave you alone. What's a mini blend? It's the enemy that you didn't find in the Forsaken Fortress last oh, week. Oh, cool. Well, that's really fun. Yeah, uh, they're, they're the ones that go nyet nyet nyet. That's that's their iconic cry. So, ah, fair enough. And what happens when you feed bait to a mini blend? Well, they they're distracted basically. So instead of chasing you around, they'll they'll go over to the bait. So something to something to think about when they're annoying you by nyet nyetting everywhere. Log <laughs> logged for future reference. So, uh, part eight is Australia facts, um, and today's Australia fact is that the 
The Australian uh, postal public system is called Australia Post. Um, that's it. That's the fact. Um, just something to just something to think about. <laughs> that's a nice and sensible name for that service. I. That's really nice. In in some ways, I would have been confused if it had been called anything else. <laughs> Once so, again, logged for future reference. Yeah, you know, you never know when you'll need it. Like when you'll be able to pull it, pull it out when you're having a conversation with an Australian, and you're like, "Oh yes, Australia Post," and they'll look at you like, "Wow, <laughs> you're so learned in the ways of Australia." <laughs> yes. So, all right. So now we'll skip to part twelve. Uh, wow, the water dragon in Skyward Sword doesn't know what she's doing. <laughs> i can't wait to hear this one this is gonna be a good one so i just want to give a special shout out to the goddesses of hyrule who have learned from bad examples and have decided that the the best way to deal with problems is to flood hyrule and infest it with sharks <laughs> like this is not a good strategy it didn't work last time like it's clearly not not working this time um you know just like get it together stop flooding places when you don't get your way you know so just <laughs> Well, at least the water dragon was kind enough to unflood that section of Hyrule once we once we did all of its, uh, you know, bulk <laughs> jumping through hoops. Tad tones. Yeah, I mean, no, that yeah. was. Yeah. Well, well, we'll I'm gonna, see. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tack on to part twelve where the water dragon doesn't know what she's doing and say that evolving the Zora people into Ritos. Makes literally no sense. Was that explicitly stated in this part of the... It, it hasn't been stated, but I know that that is a thing. Just, I think it's in Hyrule Historia, maybe. I don't know. I've heard it around, and maybe it's not actually true, but I think it is true. But taking an aquatic race and making them no longer aquatic in a Hyrule that is 80% water... Makes no sense at all. Well, see, they can't live there because of the shark infestation, because of the goddesses, um, and their just inability uh, okay, to get yeah. rid of sharks. Um, <laughs> it all comes back to the water dragon. <laughs> it's all her fault. We're just going to blame her for everything. <laughs> but but yes, the, the evolution thing is interesting. Um, it's something that I think I briefly brought up during the Breath of the Wild season in regards to the timeline. The timeline that you both believe that Breath of the Wild is in, the child timeline, is not this timeline. Right. So theoretically, the existence of the Rito in Breath of the Wild is an odd situation. Like, what does that imply? Does this mean that it was inevitable for the goddesses to flood Hyrule at some point? Um, just because that's their hobby. Um, and so even <laughs> in other timelines uh, that weren't the Wind Waker, eventually Hyrule gets flooded and eventually the Zora need to turn into Rito. It's just a uh, a curious little piece of uh, of lore there. Um, 
It is it is definitely very interesting because especially in a lot of the like symbolism and iconography around the Rito in this game, they are very tied to uh, iconography and shape language of the Zora people. Specifically, the symbol that appears on the front of Medley's uh, tunic, right, is the, the uh, sapphire. Yeah, it's Zora's sapphire, right? It's a it's a it's an interpretation of that. A classic icon from Ocarina of Time. And so there's very clear parallels being drawn in this game. Whereas you're right, Cody, in Breath of the Wild, they're presented much more as completely distinct cultures with completely distinct identities. Um, and, I, and I do think that that is very interesting. And it's the kind of thing where, like, we don't typically see, uh, we don't typically see. I guess inconsistencies in portrayal in that way with races in Zelda, you know? And another thing that I thought was interesting was Valu's speech whenever he's talking at the end, the, the symbols that are used to represent his language are the same symbols that are used in the uh, cryptoglyphs or the um, – what did we call them last week? The, the intro things. Oh, the hieroglyphs. Yeah, the hieroglyphs. They're the same hieroglyphs. They're that, ancient Hylian. Yeah, they're ancient Hylian, and they're also very similar to the ones that are the – uh, Zora storytelling stones in Breath of the Wild where you can read the history of the Zora people. The, the symbols are almost the same. Interesting, interesting. I wonder what it all means. What does it mean? We may never know. We can sure theorize, though, and we will continue to do so. Man, oh. Cody, dare I say, is this the end of the Sacred Realms rundown? No. Uh <laughs> <laughs> So um, we're gonna we're gonna go now to part fifteen. My question of the day: um, Last time in Zel- with Zelda two, uh, what I asked was, you know, if if the devs were able to play the next two games after that, like what what do you think basically they would change about Zelda two? Or I think I said Super Metroid and a link to the past. Um, so similar but not quite the same question. If there were two video games for the developers of The Wind Waker that you would like them to have been able to play before they finished development of The Wind Waker, um, you know, it doesn't have to be in the Zelda series, um, what games would those be and what would you want to see taken from them for The Wind Waker? This is an incredibly difficult question for me, and so I'm going to let Matt go first because i'm gonna have to actually bow out of this one because i don't feel like i've played enough of wind waker to weigh in on that yet like i don't want to say that it needs to change in some fundamental way when i haven't even beaten the game so i'm going to remove myself from that question on the basis of uh having no history with the game whatsoever i yeah i respect that i mean here's here's the reason this is tough for me cody let, let's talk specifically about the next two Zelda games that came after this one, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe I can open it up to other games and other series in a second. I can't think of a single thing that Skyward Sword or Twilight Princess do that is not a main gimmick of those games that is done better than in Wind Waker. 
Um, and when I say gimmick, I, I know that sounds pejorative. I'm talking about like the stuff that each Zelda game does that is like unique to that game. In Twilight Princess, it's like the wolf stuff, right? In Skyward mm-hmm. Sword, it's the combat mechanic, right? It's stuff that's like specific to those games. Um, but when we're talking about general like ways that the Zelda formula evolves from game to game, I don't know. I think that honestly, especially now playing it again, I see why people got to a certain point of fatigue with this style of Zelda game after Skyward Sword's release. And it's not because I think that it's not fun at that point. I think it's still fun. Obviously, I had a ton of fun with Skyward Sword when we played it. Um, Matt holds it in very high esteem, and I hold it in not as quite high of an esteem, but still pretty high. But I think that a lot of it does sort of have to do with the fact that Even though Twilight Princess and Skyward Sword tell very different stories than Wind Waker and they have very different tones than Wind Waker and they have unique experiences to Wind Waker, you know, they they do their own thing. They have their own identity. I don't know that either of them sufficiently evolve the Zelda formula too much further past what we're presented with in this game. Yeah, look, Skyward Sword has a couple of things of just like introduction to the idea of picking up crafting elements and using that to upgrade and that kind of thing that came into Breath of the Wild and stamina meters and that kind of thing. But it doesn't necessarily apply to something that would unanimously make Wind Waker better. Yeah, I would agree. So that's sort of I why think- I asked phrased the question like that, actually, also, because I didn't think that the next two Zelda games were, like, this was the stage in the Zelda series where there was that like 15 year period where they just kept trying to recreate Ocarina of Time and, you know, it made very, some very good games, but didn't necessarily iterate that much. So I will circle back around to this thought in our recap episode. Uh, and I might be getting a little bit ahead of myself by stating it here, but I've, I've thought this from the beginning and I knew that this was going to be my opinion on this going into this game. So here it is, and we'll see where I land with this and how this opinion evolves throughout the season. But just for the record, my opinion on Wind Waker is that this game is the ultimate expression of the Ocarina of Time style of Zelda game Oof. and that it is never surpassed after this point. Um and I'll get more into why I think that and why I feel that later. But I think that if Ocarina of Time, like that style of Zelda game, is what you grew up with, like 3D open world Zelda games pre Breath of the Wild, that's what you identify with the most, especially over the 2D top down versions. I think that Wind Waker has got the most bang for your buck out of any of them. It does it like it just evolves that formula the best and it has the best balance of things uh, while iterating more than previous or ones after it did. And that's one of the reasons that I've been so excited for Matt to play this game, because Matt's whole thing this entire show has been how it's difficult for him to identify as much with the top down Zelda games as the 3D games, because those weren't his Zelda games in the beginning, Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask were. And so for that reason, I have been very excited for Matt to get into this game. And so Matt, there you have it. That's that's where my thoughts and feelings are. And that's why I've been so excited for you to get into this. And I guess now we're just going to see if I continue feeling that way on this replay. And also we'll see 
I where you land with it and, and if you think I'm out of my mind or not. Uh, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, uh, I basically, I mean, agree in a lot of ways. I think, like, I don't think that there are things from Twilight Princess or Skyward Sword necessarily that, aside from, you know, there's a few minor UI tweaks and stuff that people, that, that get made over the years that, like, I think the, tend to get, because you're playing the remake version of, of The Wind Waker as well. Um, so a lot of that should hopefully be solved for you, any any minor stuff there. Um, but, you know, aside from that, you know, even Breath of the Wild, I'm not sure, like, because I don't want, I don't want Wind Waker to be attempting to be Breath of the Wild. Like, I want it to be more of the Wind Waker. Um, you know, so I'm not sure if I'd, I'd want the devs to play Breath of the Wild before they make the Wind Waker even even though I think Breath of the Wild is my favorite Zelda game. So just something that I thought was an interesting prompt of like, what what could improve this? What what developments have been made in the field of video games that would make this any better than it currently is? So, yeah, just something to continue thinking about. Um, and, yeah, part 16, Australian government update, um, as, as we created uh earlier in in this uh episode uh my update is that i've been elected hooray yay we need hooray. to play uh what, what's the uh there's a there's a song that goes with that um hail to the chief i think oh yeah yep that one there you go cody you're the chief and we have now hailed you well, thank you. Congratulations. Uh, so that's that's the end of the the Sacred Realms rundown for now. Um, the sixteen part uh, series that happens in every episode, <laughs> or at least every episode that we have Cody on, and we love it. We wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, Cody is indeed correct. That brings us to the end of the Sacred Realms rundown for this week. We will, of course, be back next week with another installment of the Sacred Realms rundown covering another dungeon section of this game. Cody, it has been a pleasure having you back on. Um, we're early in the season now, and I'm definitely very excited to catch up with you further down the road and let you know. I mean, that that prompt that you gave us really I think is going to stick in the back of both of our minds for a while. Um, you know, it's – it, it, you know, it's something that I knew I was going to be thinking about a lot, and I think it's something that Matt now has to kind of like chew on as he kind of goes forward in this game. And that's great because that just gives uh, – that adds fuel to the fire of our discussion, and Indeed. we're all about that. Pour, pour some gasoline on that fire. Let's go. Absolutely. But all that is to say, Cody, seriously, we always love uh, having you on the show, man. Uh this absolutely, you know, will not be the last time. We'll we'll have you back around for more Australia facts and all that other wonderful stuff that we can expect from you anytime you come on. Uh, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Yeah, I'll see you around. Excellent. Real quick before we get out of here, I know that you've been on lots of times before, but just in case this is somebody's first episode, uh, go ahead and uh, drop anywhere that you would like for people to follow you on the on the webs. All right, so. I'm from Zelda Universe, a uh, incredible Zelda website that you should visit when it's time for Tears of the Kingdom. Um, wonderful, wonderful partner of this podcast, by the way. 
Yeah, so um, you can see Zelda Universe is on most social media platforms. Um, You can find us on YouTube, Twitch, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. Um, We're all over Mastodon, Hive. Uh, Yeah, we don't we don't have an official. we were thinking, should we make a server for Mastodon? And it's like, no, look, we've got, we have a Discord server. We have a message board. Um, you know, we, we've got lots of places for people to have their discussions. Um, so we don't necessarily need to jump on another platform that we would need to moderate um, in ourselves in that way. But, you know, it's it's in the discussions. We'll see where things go. We'll see where Twitter goes over the next month um but uh but yeah i'm i'm also on twitter at magicody m-a-g-i-c-o-d-y um and so hopefully the next time i come on twitter is still there we'll see it's 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 a little up in the air but but yeah (laughs) tbd tbd on that but yeah all that is to say definitely go give cody a follow on all his social platforms and uh if you're not already keeping up with zelda universe on all those places that he just mentioned definitely do that especially now uh because as cody said we are we are living in the lead up to another major zelda release and so the uh the news is going to be coming hard and fast so definitely keep it locked on zelda universe and this is just another reminder that all of our episodes do air day and date on their YouTube channel as well as on our podcast services. So that's another another place to uh, listen to all of our content if you prefer doing that on YouTube versus on a podcast catcher. So good stuff there. Uh, so yeah, all that being said, Cody, once again, thank you so much. We will catch up with you before too long. With all that being said, Matt, I think it's time for us to close this one out. It has. Alexa has turned off the outside lights. I think that means it's time to go inside. Time to go to bed. And what do you know we've cracked two hours again hey we knew it would happen it's the return of the two hour episode love (laughs) it that's right and that's not even including uh i don't know how long the uh actual plot recap will be because uh i haven't heard it yet hey that's uh let's just cut that one out of the episode yeah yeah (laughs) hey (laughs) we totally we totally read the plot recap live at the time of recording (laughs) of course we did of course Hmm. i did i always do all right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this thing up. If you enjoyed today's show and you'd like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod and become a patron. If you've got no rupees, it is not a problem. Five-star Apple Podcast reviews are a great free way to support us. More reviews means that more people see our show. That makes us very, very happy. Hi, Leans. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sacred Realms Pod for updates on the podcast and for behind-the-scenes action. Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with our thoughts on The Wind Waker Chapter 3. We'd love for you to play along with us and to share your thoughts on our social channels. The Wind Waker can be played in its original form on the Nintendo GameCube, in its HD form on the Nintendo Wii U, and of course, it can be played via emulation on a variety of platforms given that you have access to the Dolphin emulator. But in the meantime, may your hearts be full, may your arrows never miss. We will catch you next time. Sacred Realms is an independent podcast production, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel and Game Chops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify or to purchase directly from GameChops.com. 
finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences. 